Hi folks, this is Rue. And Dave. And welcome to So Many Books. So Little Time. Today we continue with Northanger Abbey by Jane Austen, the final chapters 30 and 31. The end of an era. Music! Yes. feels like a, an era has passed when we reach the end of a new book. I agree. It's like a, it. Well, <laughs> it's like the closing of a chapter. Aye, that's terrible. We've closed one chapter in our lives and opened oh, the next. It's terrible. It's just terrible. terrible. We've turned the page on <laughs> Northanger Abbey. We need to cease. We need to cease with these 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 book related puns. The terrible. We terrible. Ter- We've marked the book. Yeah, that one doesn't work. No, 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 no. You know, I um, I so rarely read like a physical book anymore that when I like er, uh, last year I got a friend borrowed me a book that I wanted to read, but it was a physical book, so I had to search through my uh, closet. Like now, what can I use as a bookmark? Because <laughs> you know, I, I read. You know, primarily on my Kindle, and it, it, the best thing about the Kindle is, yeah, you know, just wherever you close it, you open it, and it's right there. Um, I don't know if you're like this or if anyone else is like this, but in my teenage years, I didn't use bookmarks. Yeah. I would remember the page number, but here's the thing: I would not remember the page number. I would forget it a lot of times. So what I would do. I would kind of flip through the book and I'd read like a sentence or two and go, yep, yep, I've read that. <laughs> and I, 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 and really quickly I got where I would find where I was. I, look, I'm a person who's, when I had to read for, for school or for study, my books were, had post-it notes ah. sticking out of all sorts of things, especially when there was an important paragraph or whatever. So that was... I've got one book which I think I still have somewhere if I haven't given it away. Um, I took all the post-it notes. No, I still have it. Um, I think Wild Swans, possibly. Hmm. And uh, multi-generational experiences uh, of a Chinese um, family. Okay. Apologize if I'm saying Chinese. They're not Chinese, but I believe that it was about Chinese family. And... um, it's, it used to, until just last year, still have all the post-it notes that I'd left in it from high school. Huh. It was just... And it was funny, because you'd go and, you you know, a book, it'd be like, you'd whack your hand against all the, the post-it notes, and it'd be this ruffling sound. Yes. <laughs> um, because they're all hanging out there still. I think I took the, the post-it notes off because um, it didn't fit on the bookshelf properly. Uh, now, so. could, you, could you read your own, your old writing? I can usually decipher it most of the time, even my writing, because my handwriting has always been a struggle depending on how tired I am as well uh-huh. and what, what mm. I use, um, if I've got inflammation in my hand or not, obviously. Um, but one thing was also I'm, I'm left-handed, so um, in Germany you would get, you would write in fountain pen. Ah. 
And no matter what, there was the risk of the smear, which anyone mm-hmm. who's left-handed trying to write um, left-to-right writing understands the struggle of. Um, it's it's not well designed for left-to-right writing. Mm. And so I ended up having my books and everything rotated uh, almost 90 degrees, which is why I can write upside down. <laughs> Um, despite the fact that I do actually have a visual distortion of, of writing. Like I, I have difficulties with numbers and letters sometimes move. I have a bit of dysgraphia and dyscalculia. Um, some people also refer to all of this stuff as dyslexia. It's just I have some reading stuff. Um, That's why I, the uh, the grammar from Northanger Abbey sometimes trips you up so much. Yes, because it, it rearranges in my head. Um, not only because I'm used to think sentences being written a certain way, mm. because that's everyone. Everyone has that. Um, but also my head rearranges where the commas are sometimes and where right. the words are in relation to the commas. For, which is why sometimes I'll pause and we go, wait, I didn't emphasize that correctly. Let's uh, do that again. I understand. Like, yeah. Yeah. Now it explains a lot, but yes. Um, you know, when thinking back to my old high-end writing, I, cause I've always had what I call doctor script, mm. um, which has been an impediment because until I was 31, 32, my, my big dream in life was to be a cartoonist. And um, for a lot of those years, I would um, use uh, text on the screen. Like in Photoshop, I would have a font uh, for my comics. But especially my last big go of it when I was 28, 29, um, I decided I wanted to do like my cartoons classically. I wanted to learn how to use a brush to ink and I wanted to letter everything. So um, I had to, uh, to be honest... um, the advice I got is kind of the advice for um, inking well, although, again, it, this is just standard and other people do well with other ways of doing it, but you've just got to slow down. You've got to be deliberate. Yeah. And like I learned, like it, it, actually, when I look back on a lot of those comics, the um, the handwritten text is pretty abysmal, and I can tell which days I went slowly and which days I went quickly. But what I did like about having to do that is, you know, you can emphasize, you can make certain words bigger, you can use curves, you know, you can play with the shape and the size of the text for different kinds of emphasis. You can, you know, do squiggle letters when people are afraid or they're emphasizing, you know, there was a lot more to, I could do a lot more with the text itself to kind of sell the joke or the emotion of the panel, which I like. But yeah, when writing myself, I much prefer typing not only because i can type a lot faster than i can handwrite but um Mm. yeah it's it's easier to read (laughs) well seeing as though i uh seeing that i i developed really bad bone spurs and tendonitis thanks to my uh study years and the amount of handwriting that i did um there's a reason that handwriting uh, though i i like taking the time to write when I write nicely, like a handwritten mm. note or things like that, I avoid using my hands for writing as much as possible because I have difficulties with with it. Like mm. my hands hurt. Like it's, um, I'll I'll write a few sentences and then I have to 
recover my like to get my grip back or at least improved a little bit so it's 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 difficult um i've talked to i actually feel really bad because i received some beautiful handwritten letters from a friend of ours over in in maine oh yeah yep yeah um and i never really wrote a letter back and i wanted to and i just my hands have been particularly these last few years extra uh how do i phrase this um eccentric my hands have been eccentric uh-huh. now they've just been a little a little non-compliant so when i write like i'm writing very shorthand notes to myself because i can decipher my own writing but it's not something anyone else can read mm. um yes I, I do a lot more typing than i do writing i mean i could type some notes and send them that you could type the letter yeah i, I mean it, it it's it kind of goes against the spirit of the thing because you know that that joy of receiving a handwritten letter yes. in this day and age yes but i'm like you know what <laughs> a little post-it note of trust me you don't want to try and decode my handwriting that's in that long. Well, uh, well that, the that's last been... handwriting was received by my nieces, and I I knew that the parents could probably sit down and decode it. So there's that. But but yeah, when I go back and read like my old handwritten stuff, um, you know, I have to do some deciphering. And if mm. I have to decipher my own handwriting, like what chance does anybody else have? Precisely, and and the only reason that I can decipher my own handwriting is because I know my my um, the history of my education. Because I know that I grew up between Australian and German education systems, and they have very different writing um, approaches. Mm. Um, they have different timing for cursive, for pencil, for pen. Uh, all those things are very, very different. And they mm. have different rules on, for example, corrections and erasing. And it's it's very, like... I, I used to uh, get into trouble, I think, in maths for having too many pens. But for yeah. me, I needed to write in different pens depending on my hand, how much pain it was in or oh. if I could grip it. And then depending on what I was writing, a different pen would be or pen or pencil would be easier to write with. So if I was writing numbers it would be a certain pen or pencil. And if it was, if I was, yes, yeah, so, see, the, there was a reason behind it. It probably could have sufficed to have maybe four or five pens, but I, pro- I had a pencil case. So it was maybe a little out of control. Um, but yes. Yeah. Like, um, I, I think anyone um, who went to high school where you, I, I assume a lot of it these days is laptops and iPads and uh, writing maybe isn't yeah. as uh, um, prominent as it was in our day, but Anyone who uh, wrote assignments slash uh, exams will remember at the end of like a two to three hour exam, you, uh, you'd you have that big bruise on your middle finger <laughs> from yeah, where, where a, it rested a bump. Callus. Yeah. Like your bump, your writing bump um, on your finger. That was just, just there. Like there's always this bump. On yeah, my finger. we're showing each other over Our the uh, uh, the uh, video. It's also why my, probably my fingers are now twisted and distorted. Like if you look at my middle finger, sorry, so I just flip you the she's bird flipping there. the bird, ladies and gentlemen. Can you no- notice how my my middle finger, the tip, is completely crooked? It's because the way I hold pens. So, Dave, you think so? Dave, would you like to see how I hold a pen? <laughs> 
Oh, I... so so you know those those memes that go around <laughs> asking how you hold your pen, like do you hold it this way or that way? I look at the wall and going, I don't hold it any of those ways <laughs> because like I've got fingers that are double jointed and pushing down. I've, I'm resting the pen actually on the finger in a weird angle, and then my thumb is sitting like it's it's. I can't even describe. Dave, do you, would you like to try and describe what this looks um, like? It looks like it, a... it, it, it's it's kind of like when you're. Um... You're miming a duck eating with your hand, and <laughs> yes, and it, it, it this is how I write, and it's really weird, and I don't move my hand as much as I move my fingers, uh-huh. and that's confusing to people because um, when they watch me write, they're a bit confused as to what's going on. A because I'm left-handed, and that freaks them out to begin with if they're not used to it, and B because of the way I hold a pen and how I write, it's also confusing. Um. And on that note, (laughs) totally irrelevant, but um, I guess in terms of striking out and being yourself. uh, (laughs) Master of the segue. Thank you. Thank you. So chapter 29, we had a lot of, uh, we dissected quite a bit actually, but. uh, I I think that was one of our better post chapter discussions, Beef, honest. (laughs) Because we're like, what happened? They don't know what happened either. They're confused, but this is how they're handling it. And then um, we actually did, we were engaging in the things that the characters were engaging in, which was this speculation of what if it was this and what if it was that and maybe it was this and maybe, it was, but why would he still do that? Why is that behavior? Why is the general doing this? So we actually, it, we were at the same level of dialogue as the characters were. And, and of course, laughing at uh, Mrs. Allen. And oh, always laughing at Mrs. Allen. My gosh. And, and not, not, not just like how her um, well-wishing isn't from place of malice. Our laughing at her isn't from a place of malice either. It's just more no. about uh, the type of character she is. She, yeah, that's just the way she sees the world and she can't see it any other way. It's, it's funny. It's actually very funny. Um, so, so it's. Because, like, our next chapter, chapter 30, is pretty much the same size as chapter 29, and chapter 29 was a hefty one, Um, and then chapter 31 is so small, my thoughts going into this are, we're going to have resolution in chapter 30. Well, it's the end of the book. Hopefully there is resolution. (laughs) Well, well, no, because, you know, I don't think it's going to do this, but it could have like resolution epilogue in the short chapter 31 and 30 is like more of leading to that. But I think, I think the book will like have firm resolution in 30 and then a short epilogue in 31. Yes. yes. But no, Jane Austen actually intended for this to be a trilogy and <laughs> left it in a cliffhanger. No, 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 we wouldn't do this to you. Wouldn't pick a cliffhanger. It, it started with Northanger Abbey. Then it moved on to Northanger Partridge. Is that parish? No, <laughs> I stuffed up my own joke and moved on to North Hanger Parish, and I'm leaving that in. Um, and then the third is, of course, North Hanger Cathedral. Yes, as we do, as we do. Wait, is an abbey bigger than a parish? I, a parish is, is is a location, is a ah, site. Ah, yeah, yeah, The yeah, site yeah. or the geographic district to which a particular church is um, servicing. That's how I'm going to phrase it, because the word is not coming to my brain. So, so, so yeah. The only, the only other word I'm thinking of in terms of place of worship in the Christian tradition is church, but a church can be any size, so mm. that really doesn't work. It's very confusing, very confusing. 
Yeah. Larger, so it's like, larger house of worship, even larger house of worship. <laughs> North, North hangar, medium house of worship. <laughs> medium, uh, large, and extra large. That, that sounds like a Terry Pratchett joke, you know, when people don't know how to name things, so they just write down exactly what it is. Plus, plus. <laughs> plus ungood. No, plus good. Or whatever. Plus double. Double plus. Oh, Newspeak will not help us out here. No, it will not. And it should never help anyone. <laughs> no, no. Newspeak is not helpful. Okay, but so we, we are continuing. And uh, so Catherine is home and is being encouraged by the mom to basically go, look, learn from it, let it go, don't dwell on it, don't let their the treatment affect you badly. Mm. Just move on. But Catherine's kind of sees the wisdom in that advice, but at the same time is still is still mulling through it. Is still trying well, to figure out what happened. And as you brought up last episode, she's still in love with Henry. Yes, and so this this of course makes this a whole, and also was really appreciative of Eleanor's friendship and yeah. truly understood or began to understand just how valuable a friend Eleanor was in terms of her kindness her behavior and her her sincerity the fact that she mm-hmm. was a genuine person was yeah. really stuck and she realized well the good thing is good lesson is that she's val- uh, now more capable hopefully of recognizing sincerity versus superficiality and flattery yeah um and uh the mum thought that was uh, the lesson that james can take away from this whole escapade as well yes yes so the thorps have been valuable for one thing despite the fact that they are well you know that old saying how there there is a lesson in everything yes although yes yes (laughs) it's a tough lesson that one but yeah um so we are continuing with chapter 30 chapter 30 Catherine's disposition was not naturally sedentary nor had her habits been ever very industrious but whatever might hitherto have been her defects of that sort, her mother could not but perceive them now to be greatly increased. She could neither sit still nor employ herself for ten minutes together, walking round the garden and orchard again and again, as if nothing but motion was voluntary, and it seemed as if she could even walk about the house rather than remain fixed for any time in the parlour. Her loss of spirits was a yet greater alteration. In her rambling and her idleness, she might only be a caricature of herself, but in her silence and sadness, she was the very reverse of all that she had been before. For two days, Mrs. Morland allowed it to pass, even without a hint. But when a third night's rest had neither restored her cheerfulness, improved her in useful activity, nor given her a greater inclination for needlework, she could no longer refrain from the gentle reproof of, "'My dear Catherine,' I am afraid you are growing quite a fine lady. I do not know when poor Richard's cravats would be done if he had no friend but you. Your head runs too much upon Bath. But there is a time for everything, a time for balls and plays, and a time for work. You have had a long run of amusement, and now you must try to be useful. Catherine took up her work directly, saying, in a dejected voice, that her head did not run upon Bath much. Then you are fretting about General Tilney, and that is very simple of you, for ten to one whether you ever see him again. You should never fret about trifles. After a short silence, I hope, my Catherine, you are not getting out of humour with home, because it is not so grand as Northanger. 
that would be turning your visit into an evil indeed. Wherever you are, you should always be contented, but especially at home, because there you must spend the most of your time. I did not quite like at breakfast to hear you talk so much about the French bread at Northanger. I am sure I do not care about the bread. It is all the same to me what I eat. There is a very clever essay in one of the books upstairs upon such a subject about young girls that have been spoilt for home by great acquaintance. The mirror, I think. I will look it out for you some day or other, because I am sure it will do you good. Catherine said no more, and, with an endeavour to do so right, applied to her work, but, after a few minutes, sunk again, without knowing it herself, into languor and listlessness, moving herself in her chair from the irritation of weariness much oftener than she moved her needle. Mrs. Morland watched the progress of this relapse, and seeing in her daughter's absent and dissatisfied look the full proof of that repining spirit to which she had now begun to attribute her want of cheerfulness, hastily left the room to fetch the book in question, anxious to lose no time in attacking so dreadful a malady. It was some time before she could find what she looked for, and other family matters occurring to detain her. A quarter of an hour had elapsed, ere she returned downstairs, with the volume from which so much was hoped. Her avocations above having shut out all noise, but what she created herself, she knew not that a visitor had arrived within the last few minutes, till, on entering the room, the first object she beheld was a young man whom she had never seen before. With a look of much respect, he immediately rose, and being introduced to her by her conscious daughter as Mr. Henry Tilney, with the embarrassment of real sensibility, began to apologise for his appearance there, acknowledging that after what had passed, he had little right to expect a welcome at Fullerton, and stating his impatience to be assured of Miss Morland's having reached her home in safety as the cause of his intrusion. He did not address himself to an uncandid judge or a resentful heart. Far from comprehending him or his sister in their father's misconduct, Mrs. Morland had always been kindly disposed towards each, and instantly pleased by his appearance, received him with the simple professions of unaffected benevolence, thanking him for such an attention to her daughter, assuring him that the friends of her children were always welcomed there, and entreating him to not say another word of the past. He was not ill-inclined to obey this request, for though his heart was greatly relieved by such unlooked-for mildness, it was not just at that moment in his power to say anything to the purpose. Returning in silence to his seat, therefore, he remained for some minutes most civilly answering all Mrs. Morland's common remarks about the weather and roads. <laughs> Catherine, meanwhile, the anxious, agitated, happy, feverish Catherine, said not a word, but her glowing cheek and brightened eye made her mother trust that this good-natured visit would at least set her heart at ease for a time, and gladly, therefore, did she lay aside the first volume of The Mirror for a future hour. Desirous of Mr. Morland's assistance, as well in giving encouragement as in finding conversation for her guest, whose embarrassment on his father's account she earnestly pitied, Mrs. Morland had very early dispatched one of the children to summon him, but Mr. Morland was from home, and being thus without any support at the end of a quarter of an hour, she had nothing to say. After a couple of minutes' unbroken silence, 
Henry, turning to Catherine, for the first time since her mother's entrance, asked her, with sudden alacrity, if Mr. and Mrs. Allen were now at Fullerton. And on developing from amidst all her perplexity of words and reply, the meaning which one short syllable would have given, immediately expressed his intention of paying his respects to them, and, with the rising colour, asked her if she would have the goodness to show him the way. "'You may see the house from this window, sir,' was information on Sarah's side, which produced only a bow of acknowledgment from the gentleman, and a silencing nod from her mother. <laughs> For Mrs. Morland, thinking it probable, as a secondary consideration in his wish of waiting on their worthy neighbours, that he might have some explanation to give of his father's behaviour, which it must be more pleasant for him to communicate only to Catherine, would not on any account prevent her accompanying him. They began their walk, and Mrs. Morland was not entirely mistaken in his object in wishing it. Some explanation on his father's account he had to give, but his first purpose was to explain himself, and before they reached Mr. Allen's grounds, he had done it so well that Catherine did not think it could be ever repeated too often. She was assured of his affection, and that heart in return was solicited, which perhaps they pretty equally knew was already entirely his own. For, though Henry was now sincerely attached to her, though he felt and delighted in all the excellencies of her character, and truly loved her society, I must confess that his affection originated in nothing better than gratitude, or, in other words, that a persuasion of her partiality for him had been the only cause of giving her a serious thought. So, do we need to dissect that for a second? Um... Yeah, I mean, maybe we're getting into explanation later, but it feels like Austin's almost hand-waving the excuses Henry has for his father as to not actually say what they are. Well, we, we don't know yet, but he's, he said he, ha they haven't, he hasn't mentioned that yet. The first thing he's done is, is explaining himself, so he's explaining why he's come. Mm. Not the whole apologies thing, nothing, nothing to do with the father, but look, I actually hold affection towards you. And the reason I, I developed affection for you was because you were interested, like you expressed uh, those interests on your part in me. So it's not, he didn't say it, but like his affection originated in nothing better than gratitude. So in other right. words, the fact that someone saw him for who he was and, and liked him. Yeah. No, it, it, it is amazing how just nice it can be for someone who kind of likes you for who you are, especially like, you know, in terms of myself, and I'm, I'm sure you've had elements of this through your life, but, you know, I don't think that highly of myself. So to hear someone else speak so highly of me is often feels false. But then when it comes to like a romantic entanglement, it's kind of like, oh, that's kind of nice. Well, she also was saying, like, we have this whole situation where she did um, address some issues with him. Like she made challenged him enough that he went, oh, like, she's taking me literally, she's taking me seriously. She takes me at my word. I have to be careful how I express, like, and actually going, like, am I making fun of her? Am I, like, he was actually brought to task a few times. Mm. Albeit with his sister, they're saying, she, he's teasing you. And she's like, you wouldn't do that. And suddenly him going, oh, okay, she doesn't think that I would do that. And it's like, no, actually, no, I admit, I, I have that tendency, but... I, I understand that I should work on it. Like there's that, there's that not being put down, but actually having elevated. It's not about expectations folks. It's about 
seeing the better nature in someone or seeing the best in someone and encouraging them to see the best in themselves as well. And also, um, like on the other side, the fact that once he found out her thoughts about his father and his dead mother, instead, I mean, there was an admonishment in the moment. It wasn't a cruel admonishment. It was just like, how could you ever think that? But then while Catherine was tearing herself apart over the next few days, he was being kinder to her. Yes, because he, he realized that that's just, like, it wasn't coming out of malice. It was just really uh, naivety. We talked about naivety. Like, that naivety plus wild imagination plus expectation, and these things becoming complicated. Mm. But anyway, it is a new circumstance in romance, I acknowledge, and dreadfully derogatory of a heroine's dignity, but if it be as new in common life, the credit of a wild imagination will at least be all my own. So here Austin's kind of going, look, yeah, no, I've written this and I'm sure it's it like you, you can accuse me of this being a wild idea, but this is just this is how I've decided it's going to be. This is why <laughs> she's just not justifying. She's like kind of going. Fine, if you don't like this idea of this layout, it's my imagination. It's not, not like... <laughs> well, maybe it also is like an, uh, an apology because I don't know about you, but as a reader, I'd actually like to hear that conversation. Maybe, but I think this is... It feels more like an apology for the type of where his affection has come from, that it's, it, it grew from gratitude. Which, which is unusual because most romantic literature it's all about he saved her he swept her right he 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 is redeemed through her love and all that kind of stuff which... we're going back to the satire of the gothic romance here yes where, yes yeah he was she was kind to me oh i'm starting to feel affection towards her yeah it's like she's kind but she's not only kind she's so there was interaction, there was a sincerity of their interaction, and there was an interest, and he knew that she was a persuasion of her partiality for him had been the only cause of giving her a serious thought. He wouldn't have thought of her as a romantic option had she not been interested in him and it been clear to him that she was interested in him. Mm -hmm. So, that uh, I'm going to just say, from, from a psychological point of view, I'd say that sounds a lot like rejection dysphoria kicking in, where unless someone's interested in me, then I can't be interested in them, kind of thing. Hmm. And, um, and given his dad, mm. <laughs> just saying. Yeah. His well, warm uh, and fuzzy father. So loving, so caring. It's also that thing where it's kind of a stereotype among men, but it's definitely true to me where, like, if a lady's interested in me, she really has to beat me over the head and make it explicit. Otherwise, I just don't pick up on it. Yes, and do do recall that that um, when they were at the theater and all those things, where she just she just did not have any subtlety. There was no subtlety. There was no artifice, and I think that's for him was also refreshing. We discussed it before. Like he found that you could see that he was like refreshed and also kind of wait. She's for real. Like, this <laughs> yes. Is, this is for real. She does not actually understand that normally people don't express themselves that way or they're not open about these things. Mm. Yes. Um, a very short visit to Mrs. Allen in which Henry talked at random without any sense or connection <laughs> and Catherine, wrapped in the contemplation of her own unutterable happiness, scarcely opened her lips 
dismissed them to the ecstasies of another tete-a-tete, and before it was suffered to close, she was enabled to judge how far he was sanctioned by parental authority in his present application. On his return from Woodston two days before, he had been met near the abbey by his impatient father, hastily informed in angry terms of Miss Morland's departure, and ordered to think of her no more. Such was the permission upon which he had now offered her his hand. The affrighted Catherine, amidst all the terrors of expectations, as she listened to this account, could not but rejoice in the kind caution with which Henry had saved her from the necessity of a conscientious rejection by engaging her faith before he mentioned the subject, ah. and, as he proceeded to give the particulars and explain the motives of his father's conduct, her feelings soon hardened into even a triumphant delight. The general had had nothing to accuse her of, nothing to lay to her charge, but her being the involuntary, unconscious object of a deception which his pride could not pardon, and which a better pride would have been ashamed to own. She was guilty only of being less rich than he had supposed her to be. Ah, there it Und is. Yeah, under a mistaken is. persuasion of her possessions and claims, he had courted her acquaintance in Bath, solicited her company at Northanger, and designed her for his daughter-in-law. On discovering his error, to turn her from the house seemed the best, oh, though to his feelings an inadequate proof of his resentment towards herself and his contempt of her family. So he wanted to do more than just kick her out of the house. What the f I'm trying yep. not to swear, but what the hell, man? <laughs> yep. John Thorpe had at first misled him, the general perceiving his son one night at the theatre to be paying considerable attention to Miss Morland, had accidentally inquired of Thorpe if he knew more of her than her name. Thorpe, most happy to be on speaking terms with a man of General Tilney's importance, <laughs> had been joyfully and proudly communicative, and being at that time not only in daily expectation of Morland's engaging Isabella, but likewise pretty well resolved upon marrying Catherine himself, his vanity induced him to represent the family as yet more wealthy than his vanity and avarice had made him believe them. Oh. So his own, he, so Thorpe already thought that they were wealthy. Yeah. Because his vanity and avarice, and then on top of that. Yeah, it, it, it's it's kind of playing out upon my expectations, but yes. but just just uh, it's still shocking that such a. Um, uh, such a, geez, looking for the word, such a behavior was taken, like the actions of the general were not merited by uh, this, either. No. this uh, uncovering of information. No, no, it was, it's, it's a mess. Um, so, with whomsoever he was or was likely to be connected, his own consequence always required that theirs should be great, and as his intimacy with any acquaintance grew, so regularly grew their fortune. The expectations of his friend Morland, therefore, from the first overrated, had ever since his introduction to Isabella been gradually increasing. Uh and by merely adding twice as much for the grandeur of the moment, by doubling what he chose to think of the amount Mr. Morland's preferment, trembling his private fortune, bestowing a rich aunt and sinking half the children, he was able to represent the whole family to the general in a most respectable light. For Catherine, however, the peculiar object of the general's curiosity and his own speculations, he had yet something more in reserve. 
and the ten or fifteen thousand pounds which her father could give her would be a pretty addition to Mr. Allen's estate. Her intimacy there had made him seriously determine on her being handsomely legacied hereafter, and to speak of her, therefore, as the almost acknowledged future heiress of Fullerton naturally followed. Upon such intelligence the general had proceeded, for never had it occurred to him to doubt its authority. Thorpe's interest in the family by his sister's approaching connection with one of its members, and his own views on another, circumstances of which he boasted with almost equal openness, seemed sufficient vouchers for his truth, and to these were added the absolute facts of the Allens being wealthy and childless, of Mrs. Morland's, nope, uh, of Miss Morland's being under their care, and, as soon as his acquaintance allowed him to judge, of their treating her with parental kindness. His resolution was soon formed. Already he had discerned a liking towards Miss Morland in the countenance of his son, and thankful for Mr. Thorpe's communication, he almost instantly determined to spare no pains in weakening his boasted interest and ruining his dearest hopes. So Thorpe's being bragging to him, like, yeah, she's the girl I'm going to marry, and he's like, yeah... My son likes her, and she's got money. No, he, she's ours. Which, which is also funny because at the start, he was just looking at her as being a wealthy friend for his daughter, which is even weirder, really. Well, but. that's what he claimed. Oh, yeah, and, and that, as this proves, anything the general claims, because we've seen his uh, interaction with Catherine the whole book, he's yeah. he's even more of a rapscallion than John, really, in terms of what he says and what he means. Mm-hmm. Like, I, like, I can see, you know, as bad as John is, I can see the purpose behind it. He keeps exaggerating to puff himself up because he's so insecure about where he is. Whereas yeah. the general, like, where is that coming from? He's, you know, he's a general in the army. They've got a great house. They've got all these servants. He's well off. You know, yes. it just must be... T- the temperament. He's one of those men that nothing is ever enough. I am sure more will be found out. Mm. So, Catherine herself could not be more ignorant at the time of all this than his own children. Henry and Eleanor, perceiving nothing in her situation likely to engage their father's particular respect, had seen with astonishment the suddenness, continuance, and the extent of his attention and though latterly from some hints which had accompanied an almost positive command to his son of doing everything in his power to attach her, Henry was convinced of his father's believing it to be an advantageous connection. It was not till the late explanation at Northanger that they had the smallest idea of the false calculations which had hurried him on. That they were false the general had learned from the very person who had suggested them, from Thorpe himself, whom he had chanced to meet again in town and who, under the influence of exactly opposite feelings, irritated by Catherine's refusal, and yet more by the failure of a very recent endeavour to accomplish a reconciliation between Morland and Isabella, convinced that they were separated forever, and spurning a friendship which could be no longer serviceable, mm. hastened to contradict all that he had said before to the advantage of the Morlands, confessed himself to have been totally mistaken in his opinion of their circumstances and character, misled by the redomitade of his friend, so bragging, false claims, sure, of his friend to believe his father a man of substance and credit, whereas the transactions of the two, three last weeks proved him to be neither, 
for after coming eagerly forward on the first overture of a marriage between the families with the most liberal proposals he had on being brought to the point by the shrewdness of the relator been constrained to acknowledge himself incapable of giving the young people even a decent support they were in fact a necessitous family numerous too almost beyond example by no means respected in their own neighbourhood, as he had lately had particular opportunities of discovering, aiming at a style of life which their fortune could not warrant, seeking to better themselves by wealthy connections, a forward, bragging, sheeming race. Interesting how he seems to be describing his own family. Yeah, are we talking about John Thorpe or the this general is, here? No, this is John Thorpe. Descri- so... He went back to town, bumps yeah. into John Thorpe. John Thorpe is pissed. John Thorpe dis- says the exact opposite of what he said before, and this is him describing the Morelands. Oh, is, he yeah. describes the Morelands as his own family. I get it now. Yeah. yeah, so I'm saying he's describing all these things of uh, his father that the father couldn't, when he was pressured, couldn't actually look after them and. He was bragging, there was all this bragging, and, and they were, uh, it was because we were so clever, we found out that they couldn't actually afford it. It's like, let's not mention the fact that your 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 sister had a tete-a-tete with your, with their son. Anyway, and then, so we have all these things, they are a necessitous family, so whatever means necessary. Hmm numerous too well there are a lot of kids that's fair but they're not respected the 10 kids with ten, who are healthy or eight kids or whatever that they're healthy they're fine and i mean the allens respected them yep the allens respected them they are respected in their community that is not the issue and that they are aiming at a i think he's describing his own family yeah. but substituting the morelands into it you know so many folks who um lash out at others um when they don't reflect upon themselves it's usually projection what they accuse others of is the problems they have themselves Mm -mm. the terrified general pronounced the name of allen with an inquiring look and here too thorpe had learned his error the allens he believed had lived near them too long and he knew the young man on whom the fullerton estate must devolve The general needed no more. Enraged with almost everybody in the world but himself, (laughs) he set out the next day for the abbey, where his performances have been seen. I leave it to my reader's sagacity to determine how much of all this it was possible for Henry to communicate at this time to Catherine, how much of it he could have learned from his father, in what points his own conjectures might assist him, and what portion must yet remain to be told in a letter from James. I have united for their case what they must divide for mine. Catherine, at any rate, heard enough to feel that in suspecting General Tilney of either murdering or shutting up his wife, she had scarcely sinned against his character or magnified his cruelty. Yeah, yeah, my my, my worst imagine, imaginings weren't too far outside what he really is. Yes. <laughs> Henry, in having such things to relate of his father, was almost as pitiable as in their first avowal to himself. He blushed for the narrow-minded counsel which he was obliged to expose. The conversation between them at Northanger had been of the most unfriendly kind. Henry's indignation on hearing how Catherine had been treated, on comprehending his father's views, and being ordered to acquiesce in them, had been open and bold. The general accustomed on every occasion to give the law in his family, 
prepared for no reluctance of, but of feelings, no opposing desire that should dare to clothe itself in words, could ill brook the opposition of his son, steady as the sanction of reason and the dictate of conscience could make it. But in such a cause his anger, though it must shock, could not intimidate Henry, who was sustained in his purpose by a conviction of its justice. He felt himself bound as much in honour as in affection to Miss Morland, and, believing that his heart to be his own, which he had been directed to gain, no unworthy retraction of a tacit consent, no reversing decree of unjustifiable anger, could shake his fidelity or influence the resolutions it prompted. He steadily refused to accompany his father into Hertfordshire, an engagement formed almost at the moment to promote the dismissal of Catherine, and as steadily declared his intention of offering her his hand. Boom! Yes. The general was furious in his anger, and they parted in dreadful disagreement. Henry, in an agitation of mind, which many solitary hours were required to compose, had returned almost instantly to Woodston, and on the afternoon the following day had begun his journey to Fullerton. Ah, well, um... So what Catherine had imagined would occur actually happened. Like, she she didn't think it could happen, like she dreamed it would happen, that Henry will get there and maybe he'll be upset and maybe he'll sign up to his father, but, you know, realistically, no, it's not going to happen. But it actually happened. So hence, yeah. this is a fiction. But yes. And, yes. and, I mean, I'm not surprised that... Um, John Thorpe ended up being the uh, the catalyst for all this, but if the general wasn't who he is, um, it wouldn't. Have, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that. That's kind of sad to kind of have our suspicions confirmed to what kind of man he actually is. Yes, but also the way that it was portrayed was that uh, they're a gold digging family. They're trying to vault yeah. themselves into society. That's what the Thorpes are doing. Mm -hmm. That's what Isabella was doing. Yep. Hence the whole. Well, she'll be she'll be um, happy and contented enough with my brother until a baronet comes along, and then, you know, who knows? So that inconstancy, that uh, yeah, behavior. Yeah. Yes. Um, and, and even even the idea that I like that little bit about how you know um, he'd been friends with uh, James for a while, but like over time what J james was like the money he had the, the connections he had they just tended to grow in his in his imagination so by yes, the because time anyone that's connected to john must therefore be uh you know even more and more and the more they're connected to john the more they need to be uh, you know inflated man yeah he's that that's that's the whole thing that's the yeah. whole thing um, but yes, sh shall we shall we wrap up with the final chapter and then do yeah, it? I, yeah, I think so because um, I mean we kind of had a lot of discussion in that chapter, so th I don't feel there's much more ground to cover about what just transpired. It's it's <laughs> you know what just transpired. It's like he stood up against his father, which the father was not ready for. Yeah, at all. yeah, yeah. He was he was expecting he might be upset, but he's not going to say anything. It's like oh. Okay, now you grew a spine. When did this happen? Like, and no, nope, you're unjust. This is not appropriate. This is not gentlemanly. And even even that, you know. Well, I'm going now. I'm going to ask her to marry me. <laughs> yeah, tough yeah. Um Also, uh, actually, let's just go back to the start of that chapter with um, Catherine just being listless and her mother like, "Oh no, what what, what do I do?" Well, no, the mother's going, oh, she's been spoiled by her environment. She liked Northanger so much. She was so spoiled. 
Because at some stage, Catherine tried to talk about what they had for breakfast there. That's the conclusion you went with? Maybe you could have asked your daughter what was going on? But then whether the daughter would admit that she liked someone? Mm. But but the good thing is that when, when Henry arrived, Miss Morland could see it, went, okay, maybe we don't need that book right now. It's actually to do with this dude. There, there, there's something going on here. Yeah. Because I like she she comes back after searching for the not only searching for the book but she was also delayed by family matters because you know she's the mother of a giant household, yeah. And she comes back and some there's this strange man. <laughs> it's like she missed in that fifteen minutes. She missed hearing that there was um, okay a visitor and oh the visitor's talking to excuse me Catherine. I also love where you know Henry asked where the Allens were because he wanted to convey his. Uh, his not pleasantries to them and Sarah Moreland's like, oh, they're just over there. You can see it from the window. And then and, the mom's and... like, shush. <laughs> <laughs> mom's able to read between the lines here. Yeah. Sarah, not so much. So, yes. Chapter 31. Mr. and Mrs. Moreland's surprise on being applied to Mr. Tilney for their consent to his marrying their daughter was, for a few minutes, considerable. It having never entered their heads to suspect an attachment on either side. But as nothing, after all, could be more natural than Catherine's being beloved, they <laughs> so lovely, they soon learned to consider it with only the happy agitation of gratified pride, and as far as they alone were concerned, had not a single objection to start. His pleasing manners and good sense were self-evident recommendations, and having never heard evil of him, it was not their way to suppose any evil could be told. Good wills supplying the place of experience, his character needed no attestation. Catherine would make a sad, heedless young housekeeper, to be sure, was her mother's foreboding remark, but quick was the consolation of there being nothing like practice. There was but one obstacle, in short, to be mentioned— but till that one was removed, it must be impossible for them to sanction the engagement. Mm. Their tempers were mild, but their principles were steady, and while his parents so expressly forbade the connection, they could not allow themselves to encourage it. That the general should come forward to solicit the alliance, or that he should even very heartily approve it, they were not refined enough to make any parading stipulation. But the decent appearance of consent must be yielded and that once obtained, and their own hearts made them trust, that it could not be very long denied, their willing approbation was instantly to follow. His consent was all that they wished for. They were no more inclined than entitled to demand his money. Of a very considerable fortune, his son was, by marriage settlements, eventually secure. His present income was an income of independence and comfort, and, under every pecuniary view, it was a match beyond the claims of their daughter. The young people could not be surprised at a decision like this. They felt and they deplored, but they could not resent it, and they parted endeavouring to hope that such a change in the general as each believed almost impossible might speedily take place to unite them again in the fullness of privileged affection. Henry returned to what was now his only home to watch over his young plantations and extend his improvements for her sake to whose share in them he looked anxiously forward. And Catherine remained at Fullerton to cry. Oh. Whether the torments of absence were softened by clandestine correspondence, let us not inquire. Mr. and Mrs. Moran never did, 
they had been too kind to exact any promise and whenever Catherine received a letter, as at that time happened pretty often, they always looked another way. So they didn't explicitly say you can't talk until the general gives consent. They've just kind of gone, it's okay. Just yes, and when he gives consent, you can marry. The anxiety which in this state of their attachment must be the portion of Henry and Catherine, and of all who loved either, as to its final event, can hardly extend. I fear to the bosom of my readers who will see in the tell-tale compression of the pages before them that we are all hastening together to perfect felicity. The means by which their early marriage was effected can be the only doubt. What probable circumstance could work upon a temper like the general's? The circumstance which chiefly availed was the marriage of his daughter with a man of fortune and consequence, which took place in the course of the summer, an accession of dignity that threw him into a fit of good humour from which he did not recover till after Eleanor had obtained his forgiveness of Henry and his permission for him to be a fool if he liked it. The marriage of Eleanor Tilney, her removal from all the evils of such a home as Northanger, had been made by Henry's banishment to the home of her choice, and the man of her choice is an event which I expect to give general satisfaction among all her acquaintance. My own joy on the occasion is very sincere. <laughs> I know no one more entitled by unpretending merit, or better prepared by habitual suffering, to receive and enjoy felicity. Her partiality for this gentleman was not of recent origins, and he had been long withheld only by inferiority of situation from addressing her. His unexpected accession to title and fortune had removed all his difficulties, and never had the general loved his daughter so well in all her hours of companionship, utility, and patient endurance as when he first hailed her your ladyship. Her husband was really deserving of her, independent of his peerage, his wealth, and his attachment, being to a precision the most charming young man in the world. Any further definition of his merits must be unnecessary. The most charming young man in the world is instantly before the imagination of us all. Concerning the one in question, therefore, I have only to add, aware that the rules of composition forbid the introduction of a character not connected with my fable, that this was the very gentleman whose negligent servants left behind that collection of washing bills. Ha! You follow what happened? Uh, no. This was that very gentleman whose negligent servant left behind him that collection of washing bills resulting from a long visit at Northanger, by which my heroine was involved in one of her most alarming adventures. So remember the washing bills they found? He found uh, that Catherine found in the cupboard. Oh, okay, yeah. So I, the I wasn't... gentleman was known to this family, but because he didn't have the fortune, the general didn't want him. Like, was not. Gotcha. Yeah. So whether that was a connection, there was a connection there. So she's like, there's a reason I've said this. He's connected. I can't introduce the character last minute, but this is the connection. The influence of the Viscount and Viscountess in their brother's behalf was assisted by that right understanding of Mr. Morland's circumstances, which, as soon as the general would allow himself to be informed, they were qualified to give. It taught him that he had been scarcely more misled by Thorpe's first boast of the family wealth than by his subsequent malicious overthrow of it, that in no sense of the word were they necessitous or poor, and that Catherine would have three thousand pounds. This was so material an amendment of his late expectation that it greatly contributed to smooth the descent of his pride, and by no means without its effect 
was the private intelligence which he was at some pains to procure that the fullerton estate being entirely at the disposal of its present proprietor was consequently open to every greedy speculation so there is no person to inherit the fullerton estate thorpe made that up that it very well could be that one of the moreland kids will inherit it mm. depending on what the yeah so it's, and, it's and, just, and Catherine has a very nice allowance for yes. her, her and and uh, yeah i like so he meets the family and he's like oh you are decent people well no he didn't meet the family Oh, we just he, found out about them. He found out because the Viscount and the Viscountess, that's his, Eleanor and his, mm. um, uh, Eleanor and her husband, yes, mm. they smoothed the waters. They said, actually, one of the things you need to know is Thorpe not only pulled the wool over your eyes once, he did it twice. It was, the stuff he said about the Bo- Morlands was bullshit. Um, and yeah, no, he said a lot of things that were not true. And, um, uh, we're going to go where are we on the strength of this yes so and then he also got some private investigators to look into it as well <laughs> yes of course he did well he did additional investigation as to that fullerton actually doesn't have an inheritor that there is some speculative he's being greedy and speculative so his nature hasn't changed but mm. On the strength of this, the general, soon after Eleanor's marriage, permitted his son to return to Northanger, and thence made him the bearer of his consent, very courteously worded, in a page full of empty professions to Mr. Morland. The event which it authorised soon followed. Henry and Catherine were married, the bells rang, and everybody smiled. And, as this took place within a twelve-month from the first day of their meeting, it will not appear, after all, the dreadful delays occasioned by the general's cruelty, that they were essentially hurt by it. To begin perfect happiness at the respective ages of 26 and 18, don't think about that, guys, it's not a good idea, of 26 and 18 is to do pretty well. And professing myself, moreover, convinced that the general's unjust interference so far from being really injurious to their felicity was perhaps rather conducive to it by improving their knowledge of each other and adding strength to their attachment, I leave it to be settled by whomsoever it may concern whether the tendency of this work to be altogether to recommend parental tyranny or reward filial disobedience. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's that, that's very good. <laughs> it's like, look, there's no real moral here, but if you want to take this as the moral or this as the moral. It's like, wait a second. <laughs> Also, I, I was just going to poke in, like, especially in that last chapter, she really liked leaning on the word felicity. Well, yes. Yes. Um, yes. Lots of felicity. Which makes the whole fact that her, um, the actress who plays Catherine, I think her name is Felicity Jones, which ah. makes me giggle now because the word felicity does get used a lot. Yeah, well, well because it's it's... Yeah, uh, I mean, I'm sure it is used, but it seems like an archaic word now. Like, you don't mm. really encounter it too much in in the wild, so to speak. So I just think of it first and foremost as a woman's name. Yes, yes. Whereas it actually is like an a, a, a enduring, abiding joy mm. uh, or exuberant joy. Uh, but yes, there's, there's all or good things. Good things that happen. Um, all the good. But yeah, there's this, this, um, <laughs> there's a lot to unpack here. Yeah, um, kind of how the general didn't change, but he was 
and I don't think he ever admitted fault, but he was able to, they were able to procure his uh, consent. Yes. Um, mainly because Eleanor also finally got to uh, marry the man of her dreams, it sounds like. Yes, so that's because great. his fortune and his title, he got t access to title and fortune, which are the things. So it was really emphasizing this idea of like, the general, the only thing that the general was obsessed with was title and money. Mm. Yeah. Um, and so that's why the, you know, why Eleanor and, and Henry are like, yeah, no, Isabella doesn't have title or fortune. No. Yeah. Not going to happen. Yeah. But, it's, um, and, and I like also it mentioned how, you know, Eleanor was finally able to leave North Hanger and, um, it was that that's a very good end for her because she had to put up with a lot being under the thumb of her father. Yes. And also it was saying, um, um, marriage. So obviously, the means by which the early marriage was effective can be only the only doubt. They don't know what sort. Like they're saying, what could have, have changed? We don't like in terms of the behavior, how that would be in terms of it would be a challenging environment with the general as a father-in-law. We don't know, but um, it goes into this idea of Eleanor Tilney having been uh, interesting. The phrasing was her removal from all the evils of such a home as Northanger. Mm. Um, well, I mean, also that kind of plays into the gothic romance thing of it, where you know it's, yeah, the the, the evil Abbey with the disastrous, um, mysterious past, the bad it, deeds it, went yeah. down here. Well, it's more. It's like the marriage of Eleanor Tilney, her removal from all the evils of such a home as Northanger, had been made by Henry's banishment. So the only joy she had left in her life. Right, yeah. It was Henry being there, but Henry was banished, so she had no one to talk with. Yeah. Um, poor Eleanor. Poor Eleanor. <laughs> and and the fact that she got married in a way... So he married... Yeah. Never had the general loved his daughter so well in all her hours of companionship, utility, and patient endurance. So he never loved her for doing all the things that a dutiful daughter does. Mm. But as soon as she she's married to fortune and title. <sighs> yeah, he's he's pretty gross. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, the, the joke I was holding in my mind as we were reading that final chapter as well was that I don't think we're going to hear about the Thorps anymore. But that's fine because... Um, their punishment is to continue being the Thorps. Well, not only that, the Viscount and the Viscountess, that's fairly high up in society. Yeah, yeah. So the Thorps, if they were seeking any kind of escalation in their status, aside from the fact that Eleanor knows what went down between her older brother and Isabella mm. and how she behaved. Yeah. So Isabel, all Eleanor has to say is, hey, that girl over there, this is how she behaved. And they were very rude as well when they interacted with them. They went yeah. up to them and said, sorry, she's got another engagement on behalf of, uh, Christ um, Catherine, on, yeah. on behalf of Catherine. So things like that. So they, that's bad. Like yep. for them, it was bad enough that they, they, they I mean, their behavior was hurt, terrible notwithstanding to whom they were doing it, but they were also risking it by behaving that way towards the general and his family. Yeah. 
And now the general's family, or at least Eleanor, who was specifically being dismissed by Isabella mm. because she saw her as a competition to her attention yeah. for, from Catherine, right? Like, oh, so Isabella, so uh, Eleanor, is it? Like that kind of mm. petty, childish behavior. Yeah. Oh. Anyway, so they they just dug their own grave. Like in terms of society, not only did they not manage to claw up, they managed to permanently ruin their own reputation. Mm. Couldn't Chances happen are, to some nicer people. No, I, I know. I would not be surprised that the entirety of society is informed as to Isabella's character. Mm. But the problem is they can't say much without also potentially damaging their older brother. Hmm. Yeah, so it's good. It's going to be one of those like well kept secrets that everyone kind of whispers behind backs and. Yeah, um, the thing though is that depends on I mean how the older brother also behaves and also there's a certain expectation of, again this is what we we're talking about right at the beginning when we started this how women are perceived and treated versus how men are perceived and treated, mm. um, and if a man and we have this issue even now, if a man, for example, leaves a trail of broken hearts, he's considered, uh, what's it called, he's considered a, a rapscallion and, a, you know, like heartbreaker or whatever. But if a woman did something similar, a shameless flirt and a, like, a much, much stronger words that yes. I don't want to use. No, yet. that we don't want to use. Very many derogatory words implying the ease at which their affections are bestowed. Yeah, that is that is a very polite way of putting it, um, or the the flippancy of their affections, or gold yeah. digger, like what we essentially were like a scheming uh, social climber. The, so we the, have the, all these uh, things. Yeah, no, I, I won't say. Yes, um, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, so, it's, yeah, it, it yeah. feels also like you know, it, even even it feels like. Um, Austin was apologizing for how quickly she's wrapping up everything, but it really did feel like, oh, the book's almost over. Okay, everything's everything's right now. Well, she said like the the drama had happened. She's like going, well, let's let's wrap it up. But it also, yeah, I fear to the bosom of my readers who will see in the tell all compression of the pages before them that we are all hastening together to perfect felicity. <laughs> the means by in by which their early marriage. So we, she's like, Let, let's not worry about what happens in the future and all that stuff. Let's just summarize what happened. And because I'm introducing a new character, essentially, um, who is marrying Eleanor, let me just say he's not an unknown acquaintance. There was a connection with the with the laundry bills. You can with the washing bills. Yeah, you had to. Well, you had to bring up what that was because I I didn't make the connection when that came up. Yeah, it's like. The fact that it's like was her husband was really deserving her of her independent of his peerage, his wealth, his attachment. So he was the most charming young man in the world, and he has all the necessary peerage and whatever. Hmm. And everything else is unnecessary because he's you know obviously the most charming young man in the world. That's a reference to what came up earlier as well, where where it was like this this flippant. In gothic novels and whatever, you just describe them as uh, the most uh, the most charming man or the most charming young woman, and immediately you know what is meant because you have it in your head what that must be in a superficial way. Mm. Um, so it's almost it, this last chapter feels heavily mocking a lot of it. 
as, as you mentioned, it's back to mocking um, in a sense because like going, this is how things are done. It's connection. It's power play. There was no, you know, and it's, it's so lucky that things just happen to work out. Which, which I, let, let's, I won't mince words. I'm very happy things worked out. Yes, yes. Well, everyone is because you don't want to have a sad ending. But she was also kind of saying, but this is, is this a realistic thing? Is it realistic that the person that Eleanor had previous interest in, but who couldn't approach her because he lacked the necessary qualifications for the general, couldn't? And now suddenly he does and he can. And therefore, now they have influence and effect upon the general. Well, also not, he, not to transform him, but yeah. Well, he was in a good mood because of her marrying up. So yeah. that that seemed to be the the catalyst for... Because I think it also uses the term where when, when he gave his consent, he allowed Henry to, quote, throw his life away. Yes, uh, and then things got smoothed over even further when it was pointed out to him, actually, no, they're pretty good. They're fine. They're fine family. They're a good family. There will be money. And who knows what will happen with Fullerton. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, it was very Yeah, he is a real piece of work, that guy. Yeah, he is. He's terrible. The, the, the general is what you would expect would have happened if, um, if John Thorpe did escalate in society. Yeah, yeah, they really are kind of the same character. It's just one's got money and power. Yes, and, and that's a big difference. One has power, and one doesn't necessarily um, have to brag about all the people in their acquaintance. He does it subtly, but he not, does it, nothing, yeah. nothing comparatively to John. Like, no. these are the best horses ever. Like that. Which maybe that's also because John doesn't have anything. Yes. I wonder if the general is like John in his early days, or if the general came from a good family, and thus he was able to fast-track... Mm. Um, or, it, well, yeah. I mean, this is all speculation because we don't have it in the book, but yeah, it, yeah. um, like there's gotta be a way reason he, um, is like that. And well, also, um, if, yeah. I think the book said it wasn't the, the wife's death that did this to him because he was never affectionate. He loved no. her, but he was never affectionate. That, that, and also, um, I mean, this is, this is something you need to watch the, I like the interpretation by the, um, by the uh, sorry, brain will work. ITV. I like the interpretation by the ITV movie because they added a few lines. Okay. They expanded on what they felt the conversation was in terms of the father and whatnot. Ah, okay. Um, and and it it does kind of it does help gel a few things together. Does indicate like it helps you understand more more commentary on the society in which this took place basically mm. um which is helpful um things like okay so what if he he didn't actually love the mother does he have yeah. to have loved the mother he might not have he married her for fortune and title maybe we don't know like yeah that's true too because if look at the character of the the general if this mm. is his way that he perceives things yeah these are his values. His values are money, title, money, title, and nothing else, right? Um, then the question comes to the fore, which is, would he have married for love? Yeah. 
unlikely, and, well, I mean, not yes. outside the realm of possibility, but unlikely. Yes, and so All, yeah, that that's also probably why he entered the military. That's a very good way for someone who doesn't have. Um, although, actually, wait. Back in this time, the military was still probably, it wasn't a meritocracy, right? Because that's what Napoleon's army brought to the world, the idea that you could be um, upgraded on merit. But before then, it was the, the aristocracy Mixed. got all yeah. the good titles. This, so. was, this was a mix. This one is, uh, at the time, it would have been still a, a mixture because they would have been, I think, at the time of where you could still be a captain and you could secure wealth by uh, conquest and, and things. So there were ways. Because um, that, yes. that, that, that's kind of the whole kind of uh, main plot of uh, Hamilton as well. He wants to join the army so he can get a good title once the war is over and make something of himself. Yeah. It's it's the thing with, um, uh, yes, the joys of, of the industrial military complex. Anyway, so, <laughs> colonial industrial military complex and all these things. Uh, and classism and all those things, but the, the main thing is we have um, we have closure. We have closure now. Yeah, yeah. Um, they should be very happy, hopefully. Oh, um. So here's a question as well, because still, I, I can't like I think yeah, Crimson Peak might be the only gothic romance story I've ever seen, and that's more on the gothic than it is on the romance, because um, that's Guillermo del Toro, and you know how he loved his horror and everything. Um, but do, do gothic romances generally have happy endings? That's a good question. Because my, my gut says they're not probably a genre not. That I, they're not a genre that I read often. Well, uh, they can. They can be the whole, the monster, uh, Beauty and the Beast. Right. Oh yeah, that's, that's pretty much a gothic tale, isn't it? It is technically a gothic romance, technically. I mean, it's a fantasy mm. gothic romance, but it's still a gothic romance yeah. by premise. I wonder when um, that was actually first written. I don't know the... the I, um... I now need to know. The, I mean, I'm sure it's some sort of fairy tale that's been, been uh, extrapolated from. Hmm. Let me see. Beauty. 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 I'm going to look this up. Beauty and... The you know what you know what it is, Rue. Rue, yes, it's a tell us all this time. Oh God! <laughs> yes, it is. It is. Beauty and the Beast is a fairy tale, written and published in 1740. Ah, it's a very old story. So that that that's quite a ways before uh, Northanger Abbey. No, not actually. Well, like this was early eight. This was early 19th century, right? Early 1800s. One second. One second. One second. Because this was also posthumous. Northanger Northanger Abbey was written in 1803. Sorry, the door. So about 60 years. Was like, yeah. So it's not that long long after, but it is. It is okay. Beauty and the Beast would probably not fall under Gothic romance, but it. Hmm. The way we know the tale that we are familiar yeah. with in general pop culture, that, yes, it that's falls the other that. thing. The version of the tale I am familiar with is the Disney version, which you know most Disney versions of popular fairy tales have very different endings or are um, made more palatable to a wider audience because you know those those old fairy tales they never usually ended that well. No, well, it is they they argue that there are different versions that are retellings that are gothic mm. romances and Beauty and the Beast. A lot of people will will uh, fray, will will call a kind of gothic drama gothic romance. Okay, 
Um, okay, so examples are Frankenstein. Yeah, we, we, we did talk about yeah. how gothic romance was kind Jane of... R. Jane R. Jane R. Jane R. Jane R. Yeah, um, which... Yeah, no, that makes sense as well, because the reason I liked that book was, like, two-thirds through it, it took a kind of a horrific turn. And I was like, whoa, wait, what? We're doing this now? Yes, I think that's the idea of uh, gothic uh, romance, that, 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 that there's fear, there's scary things. You think Wuthering Heights classifies? Um, maybe. Phantom of the Opera. Mm. Rebecca by Daphne du Maurier. If you haven't read read that yet, it's actually I haven't. Okay, it's 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 one that's pretty good actually. Um, you think you think that's one we should do on the podcast one day? Preferably not. Okay. <laughs> preferably not. Cool. It's 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 only because it's one of those that. Um, Oh, yeah, it's an No, I I, I understand. Uh, folks, there are certain books we've we've dis- had many discussions about, you know, future books we might want to cover and sometimes uh we'll we'll throw out a book and then the instant like reaction is like, "Oh no." And we'll talk about why, but basically a no-no from one of us. It's like, "Yeah, there's something in this book we don't think is fit for um reading and discussion." <laughs> Or, or that there's just going to be it's like for example one of the books that I would have loved to have done, um, which we sat down and went okay that's a very long book, <laughs> like oh, yeah 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 as as we go on maybe we'll open ourselves up to longer books but at the moment all our books have been in the three hundred to four hundred page region yes um, and for our next book which we, we'll wait a few minutes more but we will tell you what the next book is very soon. Um, will be our longest book. Um, excellent, excellent. Um, and actually, there was a book I was thinking about uh, the other day, and I looked up the page count, and that's that's leaning more into the 600-word category. That might be too long for us, but you know, we may come up to a point where we feel more comfortable tackling a longer book. Yes, yes. So but we'll at the that. moment, we're trying, because you know, we're doing this chapter by chapter, we, you know, we, what, I'd say we get through two books a year at the most maybe two and a bit yes yes at this point so it's it's a it's a slow uh trek and not that there's anything wrong with that um obviously you're listening because you like what we do but yeah it's just like do we really want to push that to like one book a year i don't know Yeah, that, that, that it could be a very, very ideally. I'd, I'd love for us to do like three books a year. Sounds like a good number. Yes, when life does not interfere. Um, but yes, uh, in the meantime, so this is Northanger Abbey. Please let us know how you like what you enjoyed about it. What mm. did you enjoy? You? It? Did you enjoy it? Uh, <laughs> the ending is it, we just like uh, Jane Austen acknowledges. It's just kind of a wrap up. <laughs> and conveniently tying of loose ends and yeah, ignoring the even even completely. even <laughs> the, the the yeah the washing receipts it's like hey i brought that back up for oh it's like yeah can uh, let, let's have a short conversation just now about because i have my thoughts but i'd like to hear your first i think i understand why this book was never published when she was alive um do you do you feel that um, given the other books were also quite critical of um, 
the society and have similar themes. I think this was just her least refined book. And it was also gothic novels were popular at the time. Gothic romance was popular at the time and getting published or starting to get published or around this time. So I think the reason this one didn't make it to print was it's a bit, I want to say the fallout, like, it, it's it's like writing a book that the entire book is mocking um I'm trying to think of a good way well kind of like if you released a movie today that was mocking marvel movies yes although we do that and we get away with it and that's fine but it having uh the, where the premise is not only mocking it but basically taking the 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 structure and the approach and, and going, these things just don't happen. And you're writing things for shock value. You're shock Hmm. valuing it. And this is, this is sufficiently shocking. Something that is realistic and that could happen is much more shocking sometimes in than than something that you have to manufacture. Look at the amount you have to manufacture to make something that could actually happen be more shocking. Yeah. Why Why do you need like a house full of mystery when you have General Tilney? Yes. Well, not only that, like you, people were coming up with these stories of, oh, and he actually hid. I mean, okay, look, JNR, <laughs> right? But look. <laughs> Do you think not someone would have said something about the fact that there was... Yeah? Okay, so I'm not going into the details in case yeah, someone has there, read it they're a... going to. But there is a premise in there that literally is being referred to in this book. Yeah, um, there's a mystery in the house. and yes. and where people actually, live and work. Yes, yes that's, that's the thing. Because at, at about, yeah, the halfway or two-thirds book, uh, the mystery you learn about it as a reader and it really comes out of nowhere. Um, especially for how much of a left turn it is from what the rest of the book has been. And you're right. Um, Henry brings it up in this book with a house full of servants. Do you think something like this could happen? Like, do you, and also it's England. Do you not think there would be consequences? <laughs> yes. Do you think someone would get away with this? Do you think you can keep this silent and there would be no consequences? And do you think people are raised to even behave this way? Like, so it was, it was quite a, I mean, yeah. arguably, I mean, technically things like that did happen, but it wasn't in their homes. Yeah. It was, people would be, um, you know, there, there, there was abuse and there was a lot of these things that were ha- happening, mm. but not in this setting. The setting is the question here. And right. I think that's the argument. It's like you can't get away with this stuff as easily as you do in these stories. And that's probably why the the um, the books were so successful as well, because it's bringing that horror close to home. It's like, oh, yes. it's in my own backyard. How scandalous. Oh, this could happen. No, no, no. Yeah, and not <laughs> only that, you've got a character. Okay. the This idea of... Um, suspecting your your like the most heinous evil and then coming in and expecting it and that was the problem and this Mm. was also another criticism that we saw in this novel was this idea of like these novels although they're all good and well for a thrill Mm. sure but the problem is that when you've got someone who comes in and then they're going to an abbey for the first time Mm -hmm. and then they go there with expectations and then of course every small thing will be used to um, distort and to reinforce said suspicion or expectation of yep. fear. Um, that's why when she was, you know, removed from the house and whatever, all that d- drama, she couldn't 
mount that terror. She couldn't feel that terror that she was waiting for or looking for because by then she'd realized that this is not usually something that would happen and this is really unusual and this is actually happening to me. You know? Well, yeah, and, and that, that, that coach ride back, the post-chase, that's pretty much the most horrible thing that could have happened, and she was living it, and it was nothing like what was in all those stories. Well, not only that, she was distracted. She was, mm. she was dealing with the emotional fallout. Now, now your um, answers to uh, why this didn't sell are, are a lot uh, better than mine. Basically, mine went down to... Um, I think it wasn't going to be published because she spent too much of the book addressing the reader as the author, and that seemed like it was something that was just not done. Um, no, that does happen. It does happen. It just depends on who's doing it like, and how it's done. But, it's, I mean, for, for us reading it, yes, it's very unusual. And it feels a lot more like that fourth wall is being broken, which is, like, in comics, the fourth wall business is... It feels a lot like that. Um hmm. So it is complicated as to why other reasons. I'm sure there's people who've written beautiful essays uh, on this, mm. but but I suspect it had to do with uh, maybe you're you're in a glass house. Don't throw stones. Like you don't write gothic literature, but you write novels, and that already in the beginning. She also shows how the attitude towards novels, towards mm. women and reading novels, how you're already in a precarious position as a, as an author who is a woman. Yeah. Um, and and so, at this point, yeah. like, uh, um, I might be getting the timeline wrong here, but that was her first written book. And she wasn't able to get it published. And she got later books published. She wrote it, but I don't think she intended to necessarily okay. publish it. There's other books she wrote that were more refined, like Pride and Prejudice. You can see where bits of Pride and Prejudice come from in here. Mm. Not entirely, but it's a much more refined book. Um, she's a lot more subtle with her barbs and she's a lot more, um, I think this was just still developing that skill. Yeah, no, no, you're right. Cause we've, we have talked before about when I read Pride and Prejudice to me, it just came off as boring relationship drama. Cause I wasn't, I wasn't getting the satire. Yes. In, in this book, it was, it was hard to ignore it because Austin was addressing the reader directly. Yes. Yes. <laughs> And I think the um, then there's some other books of hers where she's also a bit more subtle, um, or at least there's there's a I like persuasion. Not everyone does. Persuasion is an interesting book to me, um, which again it has to do with class, it has to do with marriage, it has to do with fortunes and okay. station, and Bath comes back because huh. as you do. Um, and it is the vacation spot it is the vacation spot she i guess also it's something that she was familiar with so mm. she was familiar with that kind right of what you know yeah um so she is very it's very interesting it's a good book um if anyone's up for it and that one also has to do with character pressure it, it gives you an insight into the kind of pressures that particularly women were under mm. And I think that's why Jane Austen's literature has endured, is that it's it's actually a window into time. It allows us to see, and also it allows us to see from the perspective or the things that affected women specifically mm. um, that were not really, that we now go, wow, that's terrible, but we're going, 
how much of it still remains, how much of these attitudes prevail, how much of it, yeah. Actually, um, I wanted to bring this up last time, but it seems more appropriate right here. So I'm I'm slowly getting through a movie from uh, last year, I believe, or maybe 2019. It's called The Personal History of David Copperfield. Mm. And it's a modern adaptation of Charles Dickinson's David Copperfield. Yes. And uh, the Charles star- Dickinson's? Hmm? Charles Dickens. Dickens. Oh, Dickinson's. I'm, think- Dickinson's. I'm thinking you of the... combined the- Emily Dickinson. <laughs> or, or I was thinking of the lead singer of Iron Maiden, because I'm a big Iron Maiden fan. That, that um, will happen. <laughs> uh, but, but, you know, the, the book itself is semi-autobiographical for Dickens' own life. Um, and at the start of the book, he is, his mother, like, owns this estate alone... And she's seen this man and she sends uh, David Copperfield away with the, the housekeeper to hang out in a, in a boat on, on the beach, you know. Hmm. When he comes back, she's married the man and uh, the man instantly takes over the house. His sister, like, uh, takes total control over the entire household. And it was, yeah. it, it, it was that, that and so, such things happen as well but it was definitely that which made me think how you were talking about how little rights women had in that era and just yeah you know basically um him getting a new stepfather and him taking complete ownership over his mother and the mother's yeah. estate just changed his life completely mm. and she was probably pressured to do that because it felt like she couldn't continue on her own that way just owning the house and it's- raising her son Yes, it's it's unfortunately that's the kind of thing that it 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 does tend to be like it's um, yeah uh, the the laws the laws and and how women were treated is complicated the rights of children was complicated and and only very slowly has become really a thing. if you think of it in the grand scheme of things I mean I've mentioned this before disability rights in terms of being within laws as to whether they actually are applied and the ethics and the understanding and all these things, that's a whole other discussion. But in terms of legal frameworks, those were only fairly recent. Yeah. Um, heck. Grand so scheme much, of so, humanity. <laughs> so much recent. of kind of what seems to just be a, a standard of life today. Like um, I was reading Reddit this morning and some, some, tweet was shared on reddit just about how credit scores in the u.s were they first became a thing in 1989 yep you know they're not even 40 years old and it seems just like they they um they are the driver of so many people's highs and lows in that country it's it's it is the thing like it's um it's taken it our, our shifts and changes as far as humanity go they're constant and i mean it's taken ages and it's still got it's still taking time uh okay but arguably i mean in the grand scheme of history i'm talking humanity like the start of humanity mm. it's only been like a hot second where we've actually started to go huh children not being sent down into mines to you know oh. <laughs> like even well, and even then, it's not a hundred percent applicable in terms of the entire world. Whether we are willing or will, not willing to sacrifice the world. I mean, this is um, this is uh, maybe a good time to bring up 
the Ursula Le Guin's uh, essay that we should probably read out at some point. Oh, yeah, you mentioned you wanted to do that at some point. I think that's Even if it's an in-between, because it's applicable. And I think it's relevant in terms of we've discussed lots of dystopian, utopian, dystopian extremes. We've discussed different societies where rights... I mean, and we have with Anne of Green Gables, you have an adopted child in a in a fairly isolated setting mm-hmm. in a church driven but also reputation driven society. Yeah. You have a reputation driven society here in Northanger Abbey that is also the rights and the laws are yeah complex. And, yeah, and then so, to yeah. do dystopian novels and um, actually thinking about it. Um, we brought it up before, but the test read I, I originally did to sell Rue on the idea of this podcast was I read her and our friend Shane and Rue's mom because they were all kind of, we were all kind of hanging out together. I read them uh, Those Who Walk Away from Omalas. It's a short story. Um, if, if you've read it, that, that name will obviously trigger. And if you haven't, I recommend it. It's very short. It's, it's online free. And it's almost the same thing. It's like, what do we put up with? To have our society yeah. and and can you stand with the injustices that are put up with to live the way you live it's it's and 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 yeah if you haven't read it recommend reading it mm-hmm. um if we don't read it on the podcast still recommend reading it it is it's only when we start thinking about um there are different ways of approaching society and i guess we were talking about this we talk about this as a theme generally mm-hmm. as an individual to see yourself separate from society doesn't work as a society to see yourself as depend, uh, independent of individuals also doesn't work um the the development of the individual is affected by society the development of society is affected by the individual and and it's 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 enmeshed and entrenched and then if we don't think about things like what are the social impacts on our vulnerable members in a society such as disabled um and and, and even yes and women um and uh, people of diverse um ethnic backgrounds particularly mm-hmm. post-colonial settings the indigenous people of your country exactly it's it's all these things that we don't think about um, there, there's, there's a way of seeing it as, oh, well, it's not my fault. I can't do anything about it. Or you can do the whole, um, oh, well, the individuals, they're responsible for their own life. Or you can do like, you can be very, very flippant about things. But if we think about it, we need to look at the laws. We need to review everything from the perspective of, um, Yes, individual responsibility. Yes, individual autonomy. But also look at everything from the sense of, well, what is the social impact? What is the societal impact? If everyone just, you know, running around saying, oh, well, everyone should obey the law. But when you know that if you are sufficiently financially fluid, such as, say, the general, the general could probably get away with breaking a law. Thorpe could not. Same kind of character, same kind of thing. Thorpe couldn't get away with it because he doesn't have the financial means. Yes, yes, it's that old saying. I, I, I heard it a few years ago for the first time, but I bet it's been a long-term saying, the idea that, um, uh, oh, damn, now I just forgot how it was eloquently put. Isn't that just the way Dave's about to make a really great point, or at least in my head it's a really great point, and then it just goes, yeah. but basically it's... Um, is it the idea that fines are only a deterrent are a deterrent for the poor, but they're not actually? Yes, a if yeah. if you are rich, a fine means nothing to you. It basically means yeah. that if you're wealthy, you can break the law with impunity if the punishment for such a law is a fine. 
you know, I'm I'm not saying it eloquently, but yes, it's that idea. And I remember when I, I think it was on Twitter, I first read it and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's like, yes, oh my God, that's because, you know, I've had to pay so many parking fines for just being in the wrong place at the wrong time. And, yeah. and, and for my financial situation, they're, they're a hit. Yeah. It's, 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 it's a complex thing. I mean, we don't want to go into too much um, yeah. right now. But, 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 in, but that, um, that idea that we evolve, we are, I mean, I think, dear listeners, that I think is the idea is it's easy to pause and go, oh, look how far we've come. Mm-hmm. Um, there's nothing wrong in reflecting on how far we've come, but we also have to maybe reflect on how far we have yet to go. But yeah. the fact that we have progressed in from situations in the past, even if we haven't progressed evenly, even if not everyone has been equally uh, yeah. has benefited from the situation, um, it does show that we are capable of progress. Yes. Um... And, you know, you talked about the individual in society. I think both on an individual and a society level, it's always great to look how far you've come as an individual. But, yeah, yes. it's also don't remove. It's like don't don't be complacent where you are because there's always room to grow and improve. Yes. And, and the thing is, even if you improve one aspect of your life in terms of your conduct, your behavior, your interactions or whatever, by 1%. Yep. However you want to measure that. You move it by 1% on a regular basis, like every month everything improves by 1%. That's still 1% improvement. And yeah, there's going to be some tangos and going, you know, taking 10 steps back and taking one step forward, whatever. Yeah. That's that's the joys of life. Um, or the challenges of life, I guess. But, but we are, the fact that we are capable of change and we have, I mean, here in these characters, we're not, it was um, their circumstances changed. There was individual growth and change. Catherine grew and changed. And arguably Henry did too, because Henry went from someone who couldn't stand up to his father, couldn't say a thing, would have had maybe hurt feelings and said nothing. But both Catherine and Eleanor changed. And so did Henry. Um, so Henry, Catherine, Eleanor changed. John Thorpe doesn't see himself as needing to change. Yeah, Isabella um, didn't change either. Well, Isabella sad. doesn't, again, Isabella doesn't see herself, but these are people who don't see themselves as needing to change and grow, whereas you've got these other characters wanting to grow and change. Mm. Um, and then you've got the the challenge, the general hasn't changed in character or behavior, it's just that he's, his They caught him on a good day. Yeah, they, the circumstances have been... Uh, informed in such a way that they allowed for others to navigate around him um, better. But yeah. even Henry, even when Henry went back and he didn't know how long it was going to be until he get he was going to get the... Um, the uh, consent. Consent. He still threw his heart into the work preparing his independent home mm. for the, the idea of, look, this is the hope, this is the, the wish, and hopefully it will happen. We don't know when it will happen, yeah. but it'll happen. And that, that will be, I will throw myself into working towards this. Yeah. Um, and so at the end of this book, it does have a little summary about Jane Austen. It's just like it's one, one page. Okay. So I figure that would be a good ending, and then we can let well, you know. I'll, I'll, I'll let people the, know what our next book is, and we'll wrap exactly. up. Yeah, which is... Jane Austen, uh, about the author. 
Jane Austen's 1775 to 1817 was an English novelist known for Sense and Sensibility, Pride and Prejudice, Mansfield Park, Emma, Northanger Abbey, and Persuasion. Though she published her works anonymously, Austen was so successful that she enjoyed personal and professional independence uncommon to women in Georgian middle-class society. Born into a family of modest means, Austen brought humour, intelligence, and a cynical snap to her heroines and her subject matter, which subverted the expectations of the popular and sentimental romances of the era. Her audacious social commentary and sophisticated realism won Austen approval from upper-class opinion makers as well as readers, but it was Austen's witty and ironic observations of class and gender divisions that were so distinctive, and today so influential and universal. With a lasting impact on popular culture, Austen's canon of works still holds a mirror to each new generation of readers. So it's, it is fascinating that something has endured for this long. But even if it makes you start questioning, I think questioning and exploring how to address things in your own behavior, that's the thing. Now, um, I don't think we can get into this because then we'll be talking another 20 minutes. But yes. I do want to bring this up, what you just said yes. then, that, that her work has endured. And that's, it's kind of been a theme through, I mean, our podcast. We are reading literature, works that have stood the test of time, even if that time is, you know, um, the 40s, the 1940s, because uh, 1984, I think, is our most um, current book. Modern. Yeah. Modern <laughs> book. But, you know, that that is uh, stupidly relevant at the moment. Um, but, yeah, yeah, because we've talked before, oh, and I'll try and keep this as short as I can, but, you know, we've talked before about how... Um, Good stories, usually, good stories are about good characters, and good characters are good because they embody qualities that we we recognize their humanity, their faults, their follies, their um, their virtues, and we see how they navigate against people who share other follies and virtues, and that kind of thing never really gets old, except if maybe the language gets to a point where it's incomprehensible because, like... I've not, uh, I've not ever attempted uh, Canterbury Tales by Chaucer because I've always heard just how archaic the English is and just how complicated it might be to read that. Now that might not be the case, but uh, uh, yeah, no, it's quite hard to read. <laughs> yeah, yeah. it's quite um, challenging. But uh, let l- let us do uh, let us um, announce the next book. Now yes. we've just finished a satire and. I have chosen for our next book another satire, but of a different variety. This book is satirizing war, and uh, I read it once years ago, and I really enjoyed it, and I thought it would be a good opportunity to bring it back again. It is Catch-22 by Joseph Heller. Yeah. Um, I remember it being quite silly. Um, it is kind of some uh, an, an army man who is in the middle of World War II and just kind of has time to reflect on how ridiculous everything is. Yes, well, that 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 seems like an accurate uh, story for us. A good choice of story for us to read. So, um, yeah, please join us for uh, Catch Twenty Two. Um, uh, and I think uh, now it is time for Rue to. Uh, Wrap things Shit, up. I, I'm, I'm losing my words. It's okay. 
It, it is now it time for Rue to announce for the last time the music that was at the top of the podcast. So the music at the top of the podcast was by Charlie Mole, was the music for the the televised adaptation of North Anger Abbey from 2007, which hopefully we will watch. Um, Dave and I will watch, and if we can, we'll do a watching party. If not, it won't happen. If not, um, we could just do an episode of the podcast where we talk about the adaptation. Yes, we can do that. Um, then the music at the end of the podcast was, as always, I Am The Slime by Frank Zappa. You can catch me and on Twitter at Rumikmoo. That's R-O-O-M-C-M-O-O. And I'm over at Dave underscore the underscore turnip. You can find our Twitter page and Facebook page at SMB. SLT podcast. And if you would like to email us, it's smbslt podcast at gmail.com. Um, now that we are at the end of another book, we really would love your feedback, what you thought of the book, what you thought of our discussion, uh, what you think of uh, future books you would like us to cover if you have suggestions, um, what, what you think of Catch 22. You hear we're going to cover it. What are your uh, perceptions and opinions on that work? And um, until next time, we hope that you enjoy your reading journeys, your discussions, um, and generally, hopefully you enjoyed uh, and can give us feedback on our podcast. Uh, until next time, enjoy happy, your reading. Yes. Happy reading, folks. See you later.